Well, it's uh, wonderful to see you. We've had a great time of worship so far. Uh, I hope your Thanksgiving was wonderful. It's, uh, as I mentioned last week, it's certainly one of my favorite holidays of the year, if not my most favorite. But we're entering into another great, great season as well. And uh, that is the Christmas season, celebrating the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And uh, the redemption process began with that birth, and that's why it's so important for us. Uh, We're going to sneak a couple of uh, messages in John, both this week and uh, next week, and then we'll move into an Advent series from there. And uh, trust that we'll be able to rejoice in the holiday that we look forward to being. Uh, Today we're looking at the subject of betrayal because that's what the passage is about. And I I want you to see, I'm going to read some things off and I want you to see if they fit you. First, somebody you counted on makes a promise to you and then they break it. A trusted friend takes a painful secret that you shared in confidence and then passes that secret to a third party. A business partner cultivates your trust and then exploits you financially. You work conscientiously and loyally for years for a boss who suddenly terminates you. Somebody who's exclusively committed to you or so they promise privately takes up another relationship. You know, betrayal is the most personal of all wounds. When you're hurt by an enemy, at least you're not taken by surprise. You know you're supposed to keep your guard up. You've got to watch your back. But betrayal is being hurt by someone that you thought you could really count on. Uh, It's a violation of trust, and it always comes as a shock, kind of a relational sucker punch. Have you ever played the game of trusty? You know what the game of trusty is? There you go. (laughs) Uh, In trusty, you don't need quite so many people, but you do need two people. One plays the role of a faller, and one plays the role of a catcher. And the person who plays the role of a faller is just simply to hold his arms out wide like this and fall backward without moving the feet. Now, the job of the catcher is simply to catch the faller. In other words, reward his trust by not letting him hit the ground. Now, one of my kids taught me this game when he was maybe four years old or something like that, four or five years old. And he says, Dad, I want to play trusty with you. And I says, okay, let's play. And the first time it happened, man, it was bad news. Wham, crash, hit the ground, uh, tears, crying everywhere. And after it was over, I I looked at my son and I said, you know, we're going to do this again. Only this time, you're going to be the faller, and I'm going to be. Uh, (laughs) You know, uh, you don't want to play trusty with anyone. Uh, That's why betrayal is so painful. You know, some people, someone you counted on, actually let you fall, and your world kind of ended up in a little bit of chaos. Now, for some of you, perhaps, 
Maybe uh, you've been jaded a little bit because uh, you've had it happen multiple times. And uh, your trust apparatus is hurting a little bit. Maybe you're wondering whether or not I can really trust anyone to be sure. And that's why after, after 240-some-odd years now, one of the most famous names in all of America is Benedict Arnold. And that name is an expression of anger to someone who has betrayed us. And as a result, the name, of, the name Benedict uh, is absolutely extinct here in America. You know, when Dante wrote his epic poem, The Divine Comedy, uh, certainly one of the great works of Western literature, he had a section that was devoted to hell. And in this part of his work, he pictured, you know, different levels of hell from less severe to more severe. Uh, there was a level for people who were trapped in vanity. Then there was a little deeper level for those who were trapped in greed. And there was a deeper level still for those who were trapped in deception. But the deepest level of hell in Dante's work was reserved for traitors. Uh, for some, this started at home. You know, children implicitly trust their parents to care for them. Uh, if they put their arms out and they fall, they believe that mom or dad will catch them. And perhaps uh, maybe a few of you or people that you know go, grew up in homes where that really didn't happen. Uh, maybe it was just some emotional estrangement. Maybe in this room... Uh, a few of you perhaps were ridiculed a little too much, maybe neglected, at times maybe even abandoned by the very ones that were obligated to you. You know, those of you who work in the marketplace know that betrayal, uh, which is gaining trust and then violating it, is pretty epidemic. For instance, a company invests in, trains, and develops gifted people and then they leave and steal ideas that are the intellectual property of the company, and then they use it to set up a competing business. Happens all the time. Uh, some years ago, there was a man in central California that had a huge agricultural business. And he hired a number of, a huge number of illegal immigrants to, um, uh, for the summer to take care of his fields and his crops. He says, listen, I'll cut a deal with you. I'll give you a place in which to stay, you can, you know, and I'll, I'll feed you the food, uh, and I'll do that, but I'll hold your wages until the end of summer, and then you'll have a nice little nest egg to take back with you to Mexico. And everybody agreed to it. And then when the end of the summer came, uh, the man, the owner, ended up calling the immigration authorities, and uh, he turned himself in for using illegal immigrants, and he was forced to pay a fine, which was a small fraction compared to what he owed the workers. And then the immigration authorities shipped the workers back down to Mexico again without a dime. Uh, happens. You know, trust is sacred. And when it's violated, the wounds cut deeply. Now... The reason I've awakened your pain this morning is simply to remind you that the humanity of Jesus endured exactly the same thing. Uh, the message 
really of the Bible is that our betrayal of one another is an outcropping of our first part, which is the betray, betraying the Lord himself. You see, when we betray the Lord, we're attacking his goodness. We're saying, God, you do not really have my best interest in mind. It's only after we first assassinate the Lord's, the, the Lord's character that we turn the guns on ourselves or one another. So it always happens. We betray the Lord before we ever attack one another. You know, when the subject of betrayal comes up, our, our minds easily drift to this subject that Solomon read just a few minutes ago uh, about sitting around the table with Judas and so forth. And really, the, the story is a whole lot more than just about Judas. It's a story of all of humanity. You know, Peter also betrayed the Lord. Remember when he denied him three times and then he wept? The disciples betrayed the Lord when they deserted him right in the middle of the night at his most crucial hour. And these were men who had spent three years with him. Now, we know about those things, and uh, we understand that we're guilty of them, and so it's very germane to our own thoughts as well. Now, the setting of what was taking place in our reading was in the upper room, little upper story flat in the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus had gathered with his disciples, and it was the night before his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. And uh, the primary reason... uh, that uh, they gathered together is for Jesus to give their, his last will and testament. And they came in and he washed their feet and he did all of these things. Uh, but in the midst of the meal himself, uh, Jesus announces that he's going to be betrayed by one of the disciples. In verse 18, he says, One who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now, David wrote those words in Psalm 41, verse 9, when he was speaking about being the king over Israel and about being betrayed by a man named Ahithophel, who was a trusted advisor at that time. And what Jesus is doing is he's taking David's words out of Psalm 41 and using them typically about what's going to happen to him. And that which happened to David was also fulfilled, therefore, in David's greater son, and that would be the Lord, David being in the line of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this uh, revelation of Jesus' words to the disciples absolutely rocked them. Now, Matthew also records this particular incident, and the disciples were so alarmed by what Jesus said that they individually looked at Jesus and said, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? And they all went around. You see, the disciples never suspected one another. They were concerned about themselves. They lacked confidence in their own fidelity. So Peter, who was sitting some distance from the Lord, he gestured to John. John was sitting next to him. And he says, John, ask Jesus who he's talking about. Verse 25, and he, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Then when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, the giving of the bread to Judas 
really wouldn't have tipped off Peter and John or anybody else that Judas was happening to be the traitor. You see, at the Passover meal, it was customary for the host to serve everyone a specially prepared morsel of bread. And the first one to receive it was usually the most honored guest of all and normally seated to the left of the host itself. And so they weren't sure what Judas was going on. They're not sure of anything. And we're not even sure that he ate the morsel that Jesus gave him. But none of the other, you know, he went out and he just simply left in the middle of the night. And the scripture, what we just read a few minutes ago, this didn't alarm any of the disciples. They suspected that because Judas happened to be holding the money bag, maybe he was going out to buy further provisions for that particular feast. But in reality, we know from reading on in the book of John that Judas was delivering Jesus into the hands of the enemy. And betraying Jesus is really the essence of sin. If somebody says, what is sin? You can simply answer, it's betraying Jesus both in his character and what he's commanded me to do. So all sin first is a betrayal of God. It's not an affliction on one another. First, it's a betrayal of God. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Modern culture has done its best to try and eliminate sin from our vocabulary. And they've replaced it with words like hostility or alienation or addiction or failure to cope. Now, the problem is this. If we get rid of the concept of sin and human culpability, then there's no adequate way of dealing with the guilt that the sin produces. We can only be cleansed by the indelibil- of the indelibility of guilt by repentance, by looking up, saying, God, I was wrong and I thank you for the death on the, Christ for, uh, on the cross for my sin. And therefore, thank you for, re- for forgiving me of that which I did. Pascal, he offers some good words as well. He says, nothing offends more than the doctrine of sin, yet without this incomprehensible mystery, we're incomprehensible to ourselves. See, betrayal is an act of sin, uh, because we're trying to eliminate God's authority and thus reduce our obligation to him, just not interested in being fully committed. You know, Delilah had a boyfriend on one occasion. His name was Samson, and we know a little bit about Samson. He was a big guy, strong guy, and he was really a pain to the Philistines because he, was, uh, he just disrupted everything and beat everybody up and Uh, could take on many at one single time. And so they got Delilah to shaft Samson, her boyfriend, and just, uh, you know, so they could be able to remove his power by cutting his hair. You know, who knows all of the motives that Judas had, might have had during that night. You know, maybe, you know, we, we think, why did Judas do what he did? I mean, all of the disciples were tempted. All of the disciples uh, struggled with sin, struggled with a measure of self-righteousness and uh, were concerned about their own uh, difficulties in life themselves. But uh, why did Judas 
go out and betray the Lord. And maybe he felt that the claims of Jesus were politically dangerous. Maybe he felt that the Jewish independence movement would be scuttled by the assertions Christ made about being the king of the universe, the judge of the earth, and the cosmic son of God. Judas said, I need to take this guy out. He's going to disrupt the whole nation. And so he simply went out and betrayed him. So the essence of sin is not murder, it's not rape, it's not robbery. The essence of sin is much deeper and far more profound. It's saying, God, I want you to take your hands off my life, and therefore I'll avoid the power that you have over me. So sin is the determination to go independent from God. Some of you are old enough to remember, I'm sorry that I keep getting back to my era, but uh, old enough to remember the words of uh, a Billy Joel song, and this is what he said, go ahead with your own life, but leave me alone, this is my life. Go ahead with your own life, leave me alone, this is my life. Now, when you say that to a person, it's rude. When you say it to God, it's betrayal. A few decades back, Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote uh, the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. And in that uh, musical, there's this mocking melody uh, called Herod's Song. And Herod is getting rid of Jesus. And at the end of the song, Herod doesn't sing the words. He shouts the words. He says, get out, king of the Jews. Get out of my life. That was Herod. You know, some of our lives have been marked by similar words. You know, but the impulse resides deeply in our hearts. We oftentimes just simply dis- disguise it. You know, I'll buy into Jesus in a reduced fashion, kind of like a limited partnership. That's all I really need to do. I come to church, i part of a youth group or part of a college group or just part of an adult group, but, you know, I'm really using the Lord rather than adoring and worshiping the Lord. The problem is, is that Jesus won't assume the role of a consultant in your life or my life. See, a consultant is someone we hire for service. He comes in, checks things out, looks at the company that we have, writes a report, and once you get the report, you can do with it whatever you want. Either embrace all of it, part of it, or none of it. It doesn't really matter. It just doesn't matter. But see, Jesus is not going to come into your life or to my life and settle for being a consultant, for giving us advice on how to live. He has to be the CEO, and it's only when he is in charge that we are going to be happy both with him and with one another. You know, the greatest way to make friends with one another and have deep abiding friendships is first committing yourself to the Lord and then letting the Lord work through you in the lives of people that you love. You know, Jesus, sorry, I should, betrayal puts Jesus in a position where he no longer has authority over us. And it's saying, Lord, I owe you nothing. This is my life. When in reality, you owe him everything, and so do I. You know, consider wartime treason for just a moment. We know about wars. They continue to go on throughout the earth. Uh, 
in different spots on a part of our globe. But the goal of an enemy soldier is to eliminate your power. The goal of a traitor is to eliminate your power. So both an enemy soldier and a traitor have the same goal of eliminating your power. When you catch an enemy soldier, however, you put him in a prison camp. You catch a traitor and you execute him. Now, why is the traitor's punishment so much deeper than an enemy soldier? And the reason is, is because the traitor refuses to acknowledge the debt that he owes his own country. You know, if a wartime, in, in war, if wartime treason is bad, how much worse is cosmic treason? Cosmic treason refuses to recognize the right of God's rule in your own life. Uh, let me uh, read you a story. Uh, and uh, to the best of my knowledge, it's true. It's, I'll just read it to you, a few paragraphs. Through an elaborate will, a young couple inherited a large and very old house. They were free to live in it, but the stipulations of the will dictated that they must defer to the desires of the elderly women, a woman who deeded it to them when she died. She was also a resident of the house. It should have worked out well for the woman. It gave her a place to live when she had neither the physical capability nor the economic wherewithal to maintain the residence. And it should have worked well for the young couple. It gave them a place to live, and they were able to care for the home. But the elderly woman was selfish and crotchety and confined the young couple to one room of the house. The young couple lived in that room for 12 years, bearing three children along the way. They were models of faithfulness. They cleansed the house, maintained the house, cared for the woman, and provided her with trusted friendship. One day after a scorching rebuke from a cousin, the elderly woman came to the young couple with tears in her eyes and said, I've been a fool. The only reason I've been able to live in this house is because of you. The only reason this house has any value is because of you. The only reason I'm alive is because of you. I'm completely indebted, yet I've continued to keep you as the tenant while I assume the prerogatives of ownership. You've been uncomplaining and gracious. Your love has melted my heart. I'm going to do what I should have done a long time ago. I want your family to fill this house. All I need is one room. Let me be the tenant and you be the rightful owner. There are lots of tears, lots of hugs. The burden of the house was lifted when the lady handed over the deed. Now, the question this morning for each of us is simply this. Have I acknowledged my debt to the Lord? Have I come to the point where I've said, Lord, the only reason my life has meaning and value is because of you. In the past, I've allowed you in the house, but declared several rooms that were off limits. I'm going to give the deed, the title to you. 
I'll remain the tenant. tenant. Now, when we do that as a human being, all of our burdens will fall. Now, note the response of Jesus to Judas. You know, when quietly asked by John, who is the one, Jesus? Jesus doesn't stand out and cry out, the disease at the table is Judas. He doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus Jesus served him bread like he did the others. You see, the Lord isn't out to shatter a heart. He just wants to melt a heart. Not to publicly condemn, but to privately confront. And that's why we're all so doggone thankful. You know, he doesn't rip the hide of us in front of, off of us in front of everybody else. He doesn't shame us. He just forgives us privately and just exhorts us to move on in the fellowship of the community where you encourage others to follow as well. Now, Suzanne and I have a pastor friend who, when he was a young guy, probably rode his bicycle down to a little convenience store and uh, maybe to buy a candy bar, but he ran into some pornographic literature, probably a Playboy magazine or something like that. In those days, they didn't put him in a sleeve. And anyway, as a little guy, he kind of leafed through it a little bit and was caught by the little clerk at the cash register. And in those particular days, uh, when something like that happened, uh, they called the parents. And so the guy at the cash register got a hold of his dad, and his dad came over and picked up his son, who was absolutely in tears. They got in the car and drove just a short distance to the home. They had a little bit of a talk, I'm sure. But the father said one thing as he pulled in toward the house. He said, son... This is between you and me, and I'm not going to tell your mom about it. And he was so grateful uh, and overwhelmed by the grace of his father. You see, we've all been guilty of betrayal, and God sees it all. He sees every bit of it, but he doesn't say, hey, get out of here. He says, hey, let's deal with this Anger. Let's deal with this issue that's just consuming your soul. Let's deal with the guilt that's racking your heart. And then he comes by and says, you don't have to worry. I won't tell anybody here at harvest what we're dealing with. You know, and that's the kind of God that we have. He just simply wants to continue to to bring us closer and closer into greater and greater integrity in the way in which we walk. We know we need to be corrected along the way, but we're so doggone thankful that God doesn't expose us to everybody else in this room. You know, it's the kind of God that we have. Why anybody would possibly reject this kind of love, this kind of sacrifice, um, is just a huge head-scratcher to me. So the betrayal of Judas ends up in creating the redemptive uh, place that God has put us because of that. Father, we uh, thank you uh, for the God that you are. 
we read these stories and we see the human personalities and they stick out and uh, we say, boy, I, I don't ever want to do that uh, and all that. But Father, it's really uh, more about uh, you and how you treat us, how you deal with us. And uh, Father, you're always picking us up, dusting us off, uh, encouraging us uh, to continue that straight walk. We know that uh, along the route uh, toward glory, Father, we're going to be staggering a whole lot. And it's going to be difficult, but nevertheless, Father, within community, uh, we've got uh, both the love and the accountability that we need in order to follow you. We thank you, Father, that uh, some of the specifics of each of our lives are our secrets only known by you. But we all know that uh, we're here uh, only by grace alone. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.